All right. Now for my favorite part of the book of Esther. We're going to be in Esther chapter 6 and chapter 7. We have one more part to this series in the book of Esther coming at us next week. Um, And super excited because things really come to a head here in this chapter. Now, you may remember back in 2015, uh, a very important contest happened. Yes, the Miss Universe contest. And uh, Steve Harvey was giving out the award. And he grabbed the card and he read off the winner uh, of Miss Universe 2015. He says, Miss Columbia. And she came out to great fanfare and music playing and many tears and people celebrating and holding signs. He put the crown on her head and he walked off the stage. And then about a minute and a half later, he came back out and said, I have to apologize, and said, Miss Columbia was the first runner-up. And then he had to, if you recall, he had to actually take the crown off of Miss Columbia and then put it on Miss Philippines, who actually had won the contest, in one of the great all-time reversals. And that's exactly what's going on here, not in a beauty pageant sense, but one of the great reversals of all time happens here in Esther chapter 6 and 7. It's just a, it's a beautiful piece of parallelism that this occurs in the story of Esther. And if you know the story, you already know it's coming, uh, but there are so many layers to how this thing flips around on its head for how those who are planning and scheming thought it would go, and what it, really what it looked like, how it looked like it would go for those who are involved, even on the right side of things. It absolutely flips over in one of the great reversals of any story that I've ever heard. So just by way of review, where we are right now is the King Xerxes. He has deposed his first, his other queen, Vashti. She's now out of the picture. A few years later, he's down and out about some things, and he has a, a kingdom-wide beauty pageant where he discovers Esther, who wins the beauty pageant, captures his heart. He names her the next queen. She has a family member who raised her, who sits at the king's gate as his his job. That's his role in the kingdom. He's uh, like a guard at the gate. And he overhears a plot to overthrow Xerxes and to have him assassinated. So he gets that in uh, to those who need to know through Esther. And then he does not receive really any credit for that. But he exposes this plot and it gets recorded. Instead of him being elevated and honored, somebody else gets a promotion. And that, that somebody else is Haman. And after Haman got his promotion, Mordecai had some beef with Haman, refused to bow to him and uh, to show him the honor that he felt he was due. And so that just drove Mordecai absolutely crazy. He decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put an end to this, and I don't want to just kill Haman. I want to kill all of his people too. He gets the king to passively, the king is very passive. He gets him to agree to this edict that would allow people to wipe out the Jewish people from the entire kingdom. And so that, that's what's going on. Um, and, and so one of the great things that, that's going to about to happen here is a huge reversal that's going on. Did I say something backwards? Okay, I was getting Ken going like this, and I'm like, I almost turned around and then got very distracted. Okay, so what did I say wrong? Just tell me from out there. Okay, Ken. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just joking. <laughs> thanks. You got my, he's always got my back. He leads my life group, he and Rachel. Uh, so thanks for getting that. Okay, so uh, Haman wants to kill Mordecai and all the Jewish people. 
Got it? We're we tracking? Now we're back on? <laughs> okay, that's my bad. All right, now Esther, she goes to the king because Mordecai encourages her to go to the king and try to stop this whole thing from happening. That was a very risky act because she could have been put to death, but she goes with courage because she had prayed and fasted and had the Jewish people pray and fast ahead of that. So she, instead of coming right out and saying it when she goes before the king, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. And then at that banquet, and doesn't ask there either, invites them to a second banquet the next day. So that's what's going on. Haman leaves the banquet. He is fired up because he's like, look at all this recognition I'm getting. I'm the king and queen's only guest two nights in a row. Things could not be going any better for me. But on his way out from that second dinner, he sees, Haman, he sees Mordecai again. He sees Mordecai who refuses to bow to Haman again. And it just, just drives him crazy. And by the time he gets home, he's angry. Instead of being in a good mood about all the things that are going right, he gathers up his friends, his advisors, his wife, and he says, all this stuff is going right. But none of it makes me happy as long as I see Mordecai standing there and refusing to pay me honor and respect. So that's where we are right now in the story. His advisors say, build a pole and pale him on it. Give him a, a death that is both gruesome and humiliating because that was a way to dishonor somebody in that culture. And so that's what he plans to do. That very night, he builds the pole. Also going on that very night is the king can't sleep. You ever have a night where you can't sleep? Sometimes you know why. You're like, had that coffee a little bit too late this afternoon um, or whatever. I shouldn't have taken a nap at seven o'clock. Like, like those things that, that kind of mess you up and then you're up half the night. The king could not sleep. He couldn't sleep. So he, he does what any of us would do uh, when we can't sleep. We have somebody come in and read us stories about ourselves, right? That's what he did. He's like, come in and read the, the history of my, of my kingship here uh, and all the things that I've done. So somebody comes in and they, open, they crack open the history books. I don't know if they like, read it like I do with my kids in the children's Bible. I'm like, what did we read last night? Uh, let's see. We'll read the next story. Or if they just kind of flip to a random page. But it just so happened that the... the, the uh, the story that gets read to the king that night when he couldn't sleep after he had his warm glass of milk, he, they, they read to him the story of when, when Mordecai exposed the plot to assassinate Xerxes. That's the story that they read to him. And he must have had some inkling. He seems to have a bad memory throughout the, the whole book um, of Esther. He seems to have a bad memory, but at this point, something must have triggered in his head because he goes, did we, did we do anything to recognize him? Did we do anything to recognize Mordecai at that time? And, they, and he finds out, nope, he's not been honored. He's not been lifted up. He's not, uh, he's not been promoted. Nothing happened to honor Mordecai. Here's something that Tony Evans says. He says, our God is a God of intersections. He connects things that don't look connectable when the timing is just right, even though everything looks wrong. God is at work when circumstances look uncontrollable, when life looks unpredictable, and when sin looks unstoppable. So the king said in response in Esther chapter 6, verse 4, when he finds out nothing's been done for Mordecai, the king says, who is in the court? Because he hears someone had just come in. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, 
the king ordered. So as an official, as a noble in the kingdom, you might stand in the outer court, this is as close as you can get to the king without an invitation, and he'll call for people who are waiting, kind of queuing up in the outer court in order to hear their, their, their works of business. And so that's what's going on here. And uh, we know, because if some of us know the story or maybe have seen the VeggieTales version, that God is at work here. He's at work. God is at work even when we don't recognize him. To this point, there's been a lot of disasters going on for Esther and the Jewish people. There's been a lot of things going wrong. There's been a lot of enemies that are seeming to win the day. But God is at work even when we don't recognize him. We can go through some really tough things in life. We can have hard times. We can have times where we go, I don't see how possibly this could ever work out for good. But somehow God's always at work even when we don't see his hand. Sometimes a situation comes up and we think it's a coincidence. But God's always at work, even when we don't recognize him. And that's a major theme of this book. We've said it before. God's name is not found anywhere in the book of Esther. You can read the whole book. God is not mentioned. But one point that the book is trying to make incredibly clear to us, even in spite of that and even along with that, is that God is present even when it seems like he's absent. He's present even when he seems like he's absent. He's working behind the scenes. So we, we see this a major theme of the book of Esther, and we start to see it really come together right now in these passages. It says in verse 6, When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? What, what should I do for someone I want to honor? And Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Have you ever taken someone else's compliment? Like, hey, nice shoes. You're like, oh, yeah, thanks. Oh, you were talking to them. Like, that's an awkward moment. But it happens every now and again. And and that's sort of what's going on here. He's like, who should I honor? What should be done for that person? And how should I do it? He's like, oh, me? Not me. And so he, he gives like this whole background of all the stuff that he clearly was thinking about before. Like, this is not the first time Haman has thought about this question. What would I, what would I like to have done for me if the king were to honor me? What would that look like? He, he has a, an answer ready. It says, so he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. So Haman's thought about this. He's thinking this is meant for him, and that's what's going on in his mind. He's just, he's like, I'm so excited. This is going to be a great day. I thought yesterday was great after getting invited to the second banquet. This is going to put all of that to shame. Here's the deal. Pride makes God our enemy, but humility makes God our friend. Pride makes God our enemy. Humility makes God our, our friend. This is another big theme, but not just of Esther, but of the whole Bible. We see it all the way through. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And that rings incredibly true in the book of Esther and in life. We see it so often that right before this situation, I mean, Haman is just feeling all these situations. He's like, oh, yes, this, I'm finally getting what I deserve. And I, not only do I want all of this, I want even more. And he's trying to elevate himself. Pride goes before destruction. Jesus says it this way in Luke 14, 11, and many other places too. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, Jesus says. 
So when we lift ourselves up, we're going to be humbled. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. In fact, he even did that with Jesus. It says that when he went to the cross and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, it says, therefore God raised him up to the highest place, to the right hand of the Father. And then all glory goes to him because he has humbled himself so much. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, he's, he's uh, quoting from a proverb. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And here's where the quote starts. For God opposes the proud, but shows grace or favor to the humble. He opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So do you want to have God's opposition or his favor? It's a dumb question. We all would say we want God's favor. The way to get that is by humbling ourselves. The way to get his opposition is by building ourselves up through pride. Haman is filled with pride. All of his goals, all of his, all of his uh, ambitions in life have himself at the center. He wants to build himself up. He wants to become great. And he's detracting the opposition of God. So he gives the king this whole plan. This is how you should honor him. You'd have a really high-ranking official lead him on a horse, put this royal crown on him, and lead him on the horse and yell, oh, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king answers in verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. I love that last line. Like you are very detailed in your plan. Make sure you do all of those things that you said should be done for this person. And so that's exactly what happened. I wonder what that scene was like for the two of them. Like what were they saying to each other? What was the attitude like? What was going on as they were walking through the streets? And Haman is having to honor the person who he cannot stand, where he hates him the most. This is poetic justice. Have you ever been driving down the the freeway at a reasonable speed and then someone blows by you like an absolute maniac? And you're you're just, I mean, I've thought this before. I'm like, man, I hope I see them pull over on the side of the road with a cop car behind them in a little bit because they're driving like a maniac. And then it happens. You're like, yes, yes, justice, sweet justice. Now, this is not just for somebody going a little fast. Like this is when someone's like putting other people's lives in danger. You want to see that poetic justice play out in just a couple of minutes. And sometimes you get that, uh, that opportunity, that rare opportunity to see that happen. Uh, but this story is just filled with poetic justice. This is a plan that Haman was asking for himself, though he really didn't deserve it. He's a wicked man. He's trying to elevate himself. He's trying to put down Mordecai, an entire race of people. And now this is turned over. This honoring portion is turned over on his head. But that's not the entire story because there's more to come that really brings, rounds out uh, the parallelism that's going to take place. In uh, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 12, we'll pick it up there. Um, Esther chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. This is after he, he carries out the plan and he walks him through the city and he's yelling, this is, what's, this is what happens for the man the king delights to honor. He goes through this whole parade and, uh, and, and Haman leads it. So verse 12, afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. So what does Mordecai do? He goes back to work. Right? He goes back to his post, he goes back to his position, there's no little party, there's no feast, there's no celebration, there's no I deserve a day off, he just goes back to his spot, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. He has to go pout, 
right? He has to go pout. And I wonder if the, the whole situation had been reversed. I still don't think Haman would have gone back to his post. I think he probably would have gone home and he would have had a party or celebration uh, because of the good things that have happened to him. He keeps gathering his friends. And the, the last time when it was more of a happy gathering, even though he was still frustrated about Mordecai, he was like, bragging about all of the things he had and his many sons and his position and his power and all this stuff. And uh, that's what he probably would have done. He would have take, gathered them up so he could spend some time bragging about what's going on in his life. But in this situation, he runs home to complain. So based on what we know of Haman, this is abs- his absolute nightmare. This is a doomsday scenario because he cannot stand Mordecai. And he wanted all of this stuff to happen to him. And so this is just, I'm sure, just driving him nuts. So here's what happens when he tells them all of the things that took place. It says, his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So that's what's going on. He tells them all of this, and they're like, yeah, we kind of knew this was not going to go so well for you. Now, the chapter before, they were like, yeah, yeah, do this, and here's how you can fix this situation. Just put that guy to death. And they they were just going along with it, and it seems like they kind of had this inkling, like, yeah, I was worried it might turn out that way. Have you ever had that happen? Like, you get people's advice, or you tell people your plan, and they seem to nod along, but then afterwards, like, I knew that was kind of a risk. You probably should have gone a different way with it. You're like, thanks for telling me now, you know? Um, but sometimes when that happens, if we, if we have someone in our life who's afraid to tell us the thing we don't want to hear, it's because they know we won't hear it, you know? Sometimes that starts with you as the, as the person asking for advice. Sometimes that starts with me in situations I've been in. It's like, I'm telling you this, all I want is for you to nod and smile, you know? And you can get that from the attitude uh, that, in which we share things at times. I'm sure that was part of what was going on with Haman as he was gathering his friends the, the day before and saying, oh, what, what do I do about this? Because I'm angry and I'm fired up, but I'm also excited about the other things that are going on in my life. And I'm great, right? So what should I do to show that greatness? And they, they're just nodding along and they're saying things that will puff up his ego and his pride because that's clearly what he's after and what he's seeking. So they're bad advisors, but he's also not good at seeking advice. Like, tell me the real truth, even if I don't want to hear it. And so that we, we can face those types of situations in life as well. Um, that we're, we're sometimes our bad advisors, they're probably bad advisors, but they're also probably partially not telling us everything they could because of the way in which we ask them. We have to be careful about how we ask for advice. That's part of that pride humility thing. Our own pride can hurt us even on what people are willing to say to us because how will we receive it? So they, they hurry him away to the, to the banquet that Esther has prepared. In verse, or chapter 7, verse 1 says, So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. He is asking her yet again to tell, her, to help, to tell him this, this uh, request, to give him this request that she's been holding on to since she approached him. Um, with, you know, took her life into her own hands to approach him in his court. He knows she wants something. He keeps asking, you can have anything up to the half of the kingdom. I will give it to you. And again, that's an expression, but he's really saying, look, you're going to get it. Whatever you want, whatever you want to ask for, you're going to get it. And he's trying to assure her, but she's still been slow playing it. Now we talked about, there's a lot of options 
as to why she doesn't just come out and say it. And I think we start to see there's some thought behind this. There's some thought behind this. Because I think, honestly, I think that she was just very strategic. And maybe God's spirit was just giving that to her. But there's a strategy behind why she didn't just say the first time he asked her. She's been playing this out. Even here, in this moment, she doesn't come right out and blurt it out. She's slow in her response, and she says things very carefully and strategically. Now, if you ever want to deliver a t- a, you know, what might be interpreted as tough news to somebody else, one good strategy, and this is what Esther does here, she like gets him just dying to know what it is that's on her mind. She's like begging him, tell me, tell me, tell me, please tell me. Or he's begging her, please tell me, what, what, is, what is the advice? Oh, those are my notes. Um, Apparently, I don't need him anyway because I can't say things the right way around. But basically, he's, he's like, please tell me this difficult thing. And that's a good position to have the person in who you're about to share something hard with. And, and he's wanting to hear it. And so when she hears it, he's a ready and willing, when he hears it, he's a ready and willing audience for Esther to share this with. And so that's, that's what's going to happen. She's going to share it. But even listen to her words. Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty. And if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare me my people. This is my request. She really personalizes it here. Even before when, when he had asked her, uh, what is your petition? She said, if the king regards me with favor, if it pleases the king to grant my petition to fill your request. She, she's really saying, like, it's about, it's, it's my request. If you, if you have feelings about me, and she puts it in a you and a me type of relationship. And really, it's clear that the connection has built over these last couple days, even if, as they've uh, had these dinners and these parties together. There's a bit of a personal call. And she's, it's sort of like in a situation where you're like, um, you know, you might be appealing to someone who you want to act on your behalf, you know? And it's like, um, think of a situation where maybe somebody's, like at our house, it might be, man, you know, this may happen every once in a while. A child may act up, you know? And it's like, um, I, I could say, uh, Mackenzie could say to me, are you going to let them talk to your wife that way? You know, she doesn't. But if she did, right, there's a little bit of a personal appeal there. It's like, come, come to the defense. And that's sort of what she's doing in this situation. She's like, hey, you know, if, if it pleases you if, 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 to grant my request, spare my life. And my people, my people's life. And then she carries on. She says, For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She's trying to stoke his, his memory here because that, those were the words exactly in the edict. Those three words that destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And strong words as well. That's what's coming their way. She says, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Then King Xerxes asks Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. One time, um, my younger sister, who's a trickster, said to me, someone told me you look like an owl. And I thought to myself, I'm like, an eagle, maybe. A hawk, perhaps. But an owl? I got, my blood started to boil, and I looked at her, and I said, who? (laughs) Scarred me for life. My own sister. 
That's what Esther wanted him to ask in this moment. He's like, who? Who did this? Where is this person? Because he's fired up. She has played this whole situation out so perfectly. And God has been moving behind the scenes and giving her favor because I think her humility in this story filled with prideful people. This is Poetic Justice Part 2. We're about to see Haman impaled on the pole that he set up to impale Mordecai on. That's poetic justice. We are about to see an, a story that's filled with racist, misogynistic, power-hungry men. We are about to see a young minority woman rise up and save the day. Powerful, poetic justice in this moment. Second half, or verse six, Esther says, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. That's who it is. That's where he is. He's sitting right here at the table with us. That vile Haman. Then she carries on in verse six. Then Haman, he was terrified. Sorry, Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the palace garden, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So here's a little bit of historical background on this. No man was ever allowed within seven feet of a harem woman, any woman in the king's harem, except the king and an assigned eunuch. That's it. Those are the only people allowed within seven feet, only men allowed within seven feet of one of the harem women for for the king. And so here you have Haman, because he knows his fate is decided, he is just begging her. And he's falling where she's sitting. He's falling, please, just anything, I'll do anything. Have mercy, please, I'm begging you. Because he, he thinks it's up to the king, the king will have him killed. So he's begging her. He's going all in on this challenge uh, to, to, to overcome this challenge in his life, to try to get out of this situation. But the king comes in, and he's now violated all of these cultural norms, all of these things that you just cannot do, to make contact with the queen and be alone. Even he should have left the room the second the king did. If there weren't other people in there, he should have left the room. But he was kind of stuck in this position, and he, he didn't know what to do. So when the king comes back, and here's the irony, he's going to get the right result, but he's now being sort of misinterpreted. And the reason that was the final straw is actually not even the reason, or it was not even a legitimate thing, because he wasn't molesting the queen. He was begging for his life. But still, he ends up with what exactly he deserves. Pretty, pretty amazing moment here. Verse 9 says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. This character, Harbona, is an interesting character because he's probably one of the people who has a, one of the great bird's eye views of the whole scenario, right? He's, he's seeing what's going on with Esther. He's been there probably for Vashti and all of the things that have happened there. He sees Haman, what he's up to. He knows what Mordecai has done. He probably has a better memory than the king because it seems, it seems not so great. And so he has been observing all of this stuff playing out the entire time. 
And it seems like he was pretty ready. He was pretty ready to, to uh, you know, put more, uh, Haman under in that moment and uh, report that, that reality to the king. Say, oh, this is what he set up for the guy who saved you, by the way. Because you've been playing all of this wrong. You've been elevating the wrong people. You've been listening to the wrong advisors. You've been doing the wrong thing from start to finish. Here's, here's a big point that we see at this, at this stage in the story. With all of this poetic justice, God can reverse the irreversible. God can reverse the ir- irreversible. And I think we have exhibit one through Jesus. We have exhibit A through Jesus on the cross. Because in that moment, all of his followers, everybody watching, all of those in power, they all thought it was over, but they thought it was over the other way. When Jesus said, it is finished, they had no idea what he meant. They had no idea. They didn't know that he meant, what is finished is my mission to defeat sin and death. They thought that it meant, it's finished as in all of the stuff that I was coming here to try to do, it's done. I can't do it anymore. No, it's finished the other way. It was a great reversal. In fact, you can make the argument that even Satan thought he might have been winning in that moment. Like, this is how I'm going to reverse things. This is how I'm going to take control and take power. God sends his son. I'm going to be able to put him to death. Why do we think that Satan was involved in that? One, one thing is that Judas was, uh, it says that he was, he was filled by Satan when he left to go and betray Jesus to the authorities. It says Satan filled him in that moment. Satan entered him and he left and he went to do that. And so there was an inspiration from the enemy. When, when Esther looks at, it, so it looks at um, Haman and says, it, it's, it's this adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. That's who Satan is to, to the church. That who's, that's who Satan was playing the role of to Jesus. That's what he can be to us. He is an adversary. Literally, his name means adversary. Peter calls him in his letter, our enemy, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's always at work behind the scenes. But in that moment, when he thought, maybe I'm going to finally get the upper hand, Jesus was simultaneously defeating him. And he had no idea. The first gospel was preached in Genesis chapter 3 when God said, the seed of woman will come and the snake, the serpent, will strike his heel. But your, your offspring, your son, will crush his head. And in that same motion, yeah, he'll injure you, he'll wound you, he'll think he's getting you, but that will be the same motion where victory is secured for the good side. That's what's going on here in this story as well. There's a reversal we see that on the cross. We see that reversal on the cross. Saint's pretty convinced the cross is at least going to do harm. God reversed it. He turned it into the best thing that ever happened, even though it was still very difficult. Do you trust God with your difficult circumstances today? And believe me, I understand that that can be so hard. That can be so hard. Realizing that God has a different perspective from everything that we see. Being outside of time, understanding eternity. Even regardless of how difficult our situations are, we can trust him with them and know that he will come through for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he, may, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. If God can reverse the power of the cross, if he can reverse that moment, he can reverse anything. He can reverse the irreversible. And he does it time and time again. We see it in the story of Esther. We see how he brings it around about to bring glory to his name, to free his people, to keep his line going. 
to, and to defeat, defeat wicked people. He works in spite and even through them, the wicked people at times. And even our heroes are far less than perfect as we'll continue to see as we get towards the end of this series. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we just thank you today that your power works through us, that your power is made perfect even in our weakness. God, that you can use broken vessels and that you choose to. We see that here with with Esther and Mordecai. God, we see that in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you can reverse difficult situations, that you can reverse anything for your glory and our good. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to allow us to lay those circumstances at your feet, that we would trust you with everything that we face. God, this morning we just confess that sometimes we have trouble believing. We say along with the Father who brought his his Son to you, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. So Lord, just give us more faith. Give us the ability to trust you Jesus, help us to look to you and worship you and glorify you, not just with our song, but with our lives. We worship you.